Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to the second bonus episode in a series of bonuses I'm releasing this festive season to thank you, True Crime South Africa listeners, for your incredible support throughout the year. This episode is sponsored by the brand new podcast from Bright Rock and Change Media, Abakoti, the storytellers. You know I'm completely sold on the power of stories. They have immense life-changing impact for both the storyteller and the listener. So anytime there's a new platform for people to tell their stories of becoming thought leaders, game changers and life winners, I'm on board with that. And when those storytellers are women, who, let's face it, for so long have had their stories told for them, I'm definitely behind that. Abak Ngoti, The Storytellers, is hosted by powerhouse women in media, communication and business, Rahima Essa and Lebo Biko. Here they are with a promo for their podcast. Abakoti, The Storytellers, is a podcast that amplifies the stories of phenomenal African women. Enjoy groundbreaking conversations with myself, Rehema Issa, and my co-host, Lebu Biko, and our special guests as we unlock local, intercontinental, and intergenerational stories of women who are thought leaders and change makers in their respective fields. Abakoti, The Storytellers, is made just for you by Bright Rock. The first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Subscribe to Abakotli on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za. I highly recommend subscribing to Abakotli, the storytellers, on the platform you're using to listen right now or head over to changepodcasts.co.za. A huge thank you to Abakotli, the storytellers for supporting True Crime South Africa. If you've been a listener for a while, you'll know that last October, my first book, Samurai Sword Murder, The Mornay Haramsa Story, was published. I did a few launches for the book across the country, and it was really amazing to meet so many True Crime South Africa listeners who dropped in to say hi. One of my favorite launches took place at Brooklyn Mall in Pretoria, where I was in conversation with Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, who was a great help to me in writing this book. My wonderful friend, who's always such an incredible support to me at these events, Laura Christie, recorded that event and I released it on the Patreon feed last year as exclusive content. And today, I'm releasing the audio from that event as your bonus episode for the week. Obviously, because it was recorded in the middle of a mall without any professional equipment, the audio is not what you're used to hearing on the feed, but it is still definitely audible, and I hope you enjoy. We're turning out today on your uh, Saturday afternoon. I know it's always precious to just relax in the weekend, and I don't know if this is part of relaxing, I guess for some of you it is, if you're true crime fanatics. So uh, welcome, thanks obviously to Nicole for being here today. The, and to you, thank you very much. Um, so the, the format today, we're just going to uh, ask, I'm going to do a short interview with Nicole, obviously we'll get into a few details about the book, not all the secrets, for those of you that haven't bought it, we'd like you to still buy the book, um, and uh, perhaps give opportunity for people from the floor to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. And then obviously the, the book signing for people who'd like uh, 
her book signed. She'll yep. be here for, well, till we're done, I guess. Great. So, um, you, may, I, I, you might not know, but my name is Gerard Loviscutney. I'm a, a clinical psychologist, and I've dabbled a little bit in the world of true crime. <laughs> um, but obviously today, uh, we're here to sort of enjoy and celebrate Nicole's book. The launch of her book came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, doing obviously very, very well. If you haven't bought it already, it's definitely worth uh, the read. It's a case that I find from my own time when I was in the police, a very, very fascinating case. And I'm almost surprised that it took so long for somebody to really write a book of this sort of depth and quality um, about this case. And of course, um, we'll get into what happened to Monet in a, in, a, in a few minutes' time. So I think my first question that I, I guess a lot of people would want to know is, you know, you, you, you started out life, you finished school, you went into the world of work, and you didn't have a normal career like, say, journalism or policing or politics where, you know, it's criminal in nature. So how did you end up getting into the world of, of true crime and not just interested, but as, as sort of, your, sort of your, new, your, your new profession? Sure. So firstly, hello, everyone. Thank you so much to everyone for coming. I really appreciate it. And to the esteemed Dr. Gerard Labaskakni for agreeing to interview me. Um, so really, the interest in true crime, I think, has always been there for me. It's been an ongoing interest for me as far back as I can remember, sort of the mystery side of it. And only as I got older, I think I really started to delve into the criminal side of it and trying to understand, you know, rather than just the, the why done it, the who done it, and, and the why done it. And career-wise, I mean, this has been, it's such a strange way that it's really come about. It's probably completely unnatural, but I was in corporate for 20 years, so I worked in corporate sales management. And about three years ago, 2019, I decided I wanted to try my hand at a creative entrepreneurship. I'd always been interested in writing and researching. At the time, I'd, you know, I was always a fan of, of the true crime genre, but I'd never really thought that it was something that I could sort of create in, a space I could create in. You know, I've always sort of thought of myself as a fiction writer, never really as a non-fiction writer. And when I, I think when I realized that I wanted to create in the, in, in the true crime genre was when I looked for content myself and couldn't find anything South African. Um, I think yours, I don't know if yours was out in 2019, your podcast. Um, and that's really where it came from, you know, wanting to do some of the things that the, you know, a lot of other true crime podcasts across the world were doing in terms of bringing a voice to victims of violent crime. And then also, um, you know, a lot of those podcasts were bringing in leads in unsolved cases. And that was something that was really interesting to me. But I think at that time it was really, you know, can I really do that? You know, um, it, was, it was really going to be more of a hobby and... And then it's it's all took over. And I mean, is 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 the podcast kind of like your main day to day activities that keep you busy, or what kind of in the world of true crime is your daily sort of bread? So certainly the podcast, um, True Crime South Africa, is a big part of it. I've just started a new podcast as well. I lived through this, which is survivors' stories. So it's survivors telling their own stories of all sorts of situations, not just crime related. Um, there's a gentleman who. Um, fought with a crocodile for his life for 20 minutes. 
and survived, um, you know, all sorts of stories. And then I also write articles for executives overseas, um, Canadians and Americans. I ghostwrite for them. And now the book, um, which will hopefully be not just this one. Mm. And did you find, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of people, podcasts overseas kind of led to cases coming, being solved, etc. Do you find it's just fans that contact you or do you find victims who contact you on the stories you've covered or family members or people who were involved also kind of make contact with you after you've heard of you talk about a story or before you talk about a story on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's people who have been forwarded the podcast by someone else who is a regular listener. They sometimes just stumble upon it. Um, you know, maybe they've searched the name of their their own family member who may have been a victim of violent crime and my podcast has come up. So it really is a, a wide variety of people that have contacted me and really it's the victims' families that have started to make contact and either asked me to cover their family members' cases or just express that, you know, they're grateful for the podcast as a platform. That's really meant the most to me. Um, you know, that's, that's been huge. And do you get people, for example, that, whose cases haven't been solved or family members' cases that weren't solved? that they kind of turn to you yeah. for some kind of assistance? Absolutely. So I get that quite often, often more than I can handle. Um, but, you know, that's happening more and more. And I think the more people start to listen to the podcast and maybe see it spoken about in, in the news and that sort of thing, the more people are seeing it as a platform that differs from the mainstream media in the respect that it's not just a five-minute read article. It's a really in-depth, you know, sort of diving into that victim's experience and the family's experience and hopefully an opportunity to create leads for these really, some of them really cold cases, you know, 20 years, 15 years. So that's definitely happening more and more, which is amazing. And of course, the podcast won an award recently. It did, yes. Uh, so it won True Crime Podcast of the Year um, at the African podcasters and voice uh, actors awards recently so that was very cool and, and as you, <laughs> and as you say it's been such an interesting journey to see how I think over the past 10 years South Africans are happy to buy local books about local stories I think 10 15 years ago people thought you know local books were substandard the story wasn't that great maybe I'd rather spend my money on an overseas book and I really, if you look at the bookshelves now, it's phenomenal to see that we are really taking an interest in whether it's true crime or other stories that are written by South Africans. Mm. And you get sort of some authors like Lauren Bjorkas, who's written amazing books, yeah. who unfortunately doesn't get the recognition overseas, but her, yeah. her books are made, being made into films overseas and, yeah. and, and series on Netflix overseas. Mm. So but it is nice just to see South Africans are taking an interest in, in the amazing stories that we have to have, that we have to tell here. Mm. And I think definitely in the true crime world, we have no shortage of really weird and interesting stories. Yeah. Thankfully, most of them that we read about are actually solved, yeah. uh, which is also kind of reassuring, I guess, for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, that's something that I often get, especially in reviews, is people saying that they are South Africans either living in South Africa or overseas, and they're actually surprised to come across a South African podcast that they sort of feel is world standard and something they could happily refer to someone else. Yeah. And that's quite interesting because I think for a long time, South Africans have been 
I don't know if the right word is ashamed, but not, you know, we haven't really been very proud about the content we create in this country in, in various formats, documentaries, and I do think that's changing. Um, you know, I mean, Devil's Dorp is a good example of a really world-class documentary. Uh, Raker, you know, that, that's obviously a fiction series, but Kim Engelbrecht has just been nominated for an Emmy, you know, so I think that's it's really changing and it's exciting to see. Um. How did it kind of end up that you sort of went into the to the book side of it? Um, had it always been something you wanted to do, or was it something that just kind of landed on your the opportunity presented itself and you thought, "Let me try this out"? So I've wanted to be published since I was six years old. Um, <laughs> I clearly remember looking at a book when I was six. I mean, I was an avid reader from the moment I learned to read, and wondering how that person got their name on the front of the book. You know, so that was, it, it's, and I've been a hobby writer my entire life, but predominantly in fiction. And I think I convinced myself that there was no way that I could use that talent and actually make a living, hence going into the corporate side of things and, you know, the, you know that's, thinking that that's the way I had to go. Um, so... And even when I started the podcast, I mean, in a sense, that is sort of a publication of my writing. I write all the scripts myself. But even then, I'd thought, okay, well, I have an audience now. I guess one day I could probably self-publish a book and it might sell a few copies. And then Melinda Ferguson, who unfortunately can't be here today, but um, she's my publisher and she stumbled across the episode I'd done on Monet's case when she was researching someone trying to find someone to write a book on this case and she figured it I was a sort of decent storyteller and contacted me and yeah the rest as they say is history. And so and what was your particular interest in this case I mean like you said it's, it's an old case it's 2008 so many other interesting things have happened but what was your fascination uh, with this particular case? I think that you know when I when I looked at the story it's I always knew there was more to it than what we'd seen. And in 2008, when it happened, obviously I was aware of it. Um, it was on my radar, and I heard all the same rumors everyone else heard about you know, the Satanism and the, the Slipknot connection, etc. But when I started sort of the true crime content creation journey, looking at some, of, some similar cases where there'd been these salacious headlines and then actually researching those cases, and seeing how deep the rabbit holes actually went, and the the sort of hidden truths behind these types of cases. And that's really what, in this particular case, interested me, was figuring out what, what no one else had spoken about. What was the truth behind why Jacques Pretorius died that day? And, you know, because it wasn't Satanism and it wasn't Slipknot. And I think that was that was very clear. But you know, those were all the things that anyone was talking about. And I think that's really that you know, search for truth was really what's what got me onto this case. And I know you go into it in the book, but why do you think, perhaps the South African specifically, you know, you bring Satan into it, you bring weird sounding music, and that almost captures people's fascination. Mm-hmm. What what do you think is the reason for that? So I think South Africa has um, you know quite a large Christian community and a Christian history and what was very interesting for me was investigating the whole satanic panic part of it which I chat about in the book 
and understanding how that played into not just sort of communities, but also into politics and into really even today how that impacts the way people interact with each other in South Africa. And I think that that's South Africans, because of our history, it's almost been embedded in us to be resilient, but also fear has often been used as a weapon against us. And one of the easiest ways to weaponize a fear is to make it spiritual, um, you know, to make it some dark hidden force. And I think that's really easy to do in a country like South Africa where we have so many struggles and we have so many people that are, um, you know, desperate and sort of uh, very connected to their faith as something that they, they anchor their lives on. So I think that very specific dynamic in this country is one of the reasons that satanic panic almost never seems to go away here. It always seems to resurface at some level when something like this happens. And I think what's, what's, what's interesting is that I, I think if you look at people who are very strong in their faith, it's always, you know, don't, specifically in the 80s, you know, don't watch the Smurfs because the Smurfs are satanic, <laughs> like you say. You know, don't listen to that music yeah. or this music or these people are homosexual, they can't listen to that band, that you almost get told to just keep your blinkers on and look down, yeah. which means you, you can't even read about these issues because now reading about it would open up your mind to these things and the devil will take over. So it becomes yeah. such this... this hidden, well, this room, this elephant in the room that you can't even look at. Mm. And I think that perhaps makes it so scary because you're just always guided away from this ominous thing that's there and, and just look to the light, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's, you know, without delving down too much into anyone's, you know, specific religion, I think that for me personally, if someone tells me not to question something, I have to ask why. You know, and we know that with, with many organizations that are formed around trying to control people, that's often the thing that gets used to keep people in line, is don't question, because if you question, you're going to be at risk. You know, and sometimes that not questioning is the risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I really liked about the book is that, you know, a lot of journalists have written really uh, in-depth you know, books about well-known cases, but it almost just seems like they were just telling the gory story. Mm. This is what happened, a little bit about how it impacted upon the victims. Your book kind of indefinitely goes more in an interesting academic way. And I think that's what I like, because I know that's what, how I always try to write my stuff is, I think people are beyond just, oh, that's what happened. Ooh, that's so scary and horrible. Mm. Ooh, they cut the head off of the person or they did this. Yeah. And I think the readers nowadays want something more intelligent. They want to get into, but why do, why do people do that? Why, do, why did this person do that? And they want more. And mm. I think for me, that's what I really liked about your book because you went into those as I said, rabbit holes. Yeah. What Did you do that intentionally or did you just find yourself that mm. how it ended up going? I think that it, it was definitely conscious, but it's also just my style. Um, you know, when Melinda and I started chatting about this book, she... She warned me not to get too academic about it. And there was sort of, you know, we were always sort of trying to, you know, that there was that line between us about what is going to sell and what I really wanted to say, you know. And all of my content is victim-focused. 
And I wanted to bring that across, which is why the book is dedicated to Jacques and his story is very early on in the book. That was very important to me. But I think that I was never going... If I had to write something in the vein of some of the other... Not all of the books, but some of the other true crime books that have been published in South Africa, I would never have been able to do that. It's just not in me. Um, you know, and the fact that Melinda liked what I've done in the podcast, and the podcast is so similarly structured, that sort of told me, okay, if she's approaching me for this, she, she likes that. And, and we had our tussles about, you know, how far we wanted to go. But it was really, really important to me to do that and, and to present all of those really, you know, important, the, the academics that supported it, but also just some insights to, you know, maybe get people thinking a little bit differently around things. And what would you say is the biggest thing? As I said, you, you'd heard about the story back when it happened. Like myself, I didn't get into it. I had other things on the plate at the time. This really became an interesting story for me, mm. sort of 10, 15 years later, mm. when I started to really look at a threat assessment and preventing violence and, and, and school violence specifically and, and workplace violence. So what was it that really surprised you the most from when you started this book to when you finished all the research that you hadn't known or that just was really, as I said, quite a surprise to you? And we'll get into the aspect about the school violence because mm. I think that's what you write about that quite a bit towards the end. Yeah. So I think probably one of the things that surprised me the most was the understanding that I came to about how deeply Bornea's family was impacted by this. Um, you know, in my podcast, I focus on the victim's family, and rightly so. And I've never tried to demonize, you know, the, the offender's family, but I've honestly never really thought about them much. And I don't think most people do. And that was one of the things that surprised me the most was that understanding that I came to that certainly we can't compare the trauma that the Pretorius family had compared to the, the Haramsa family. There's no hierarchy of trauma but that they really, really struggled and they were shamed. And, you know, with the, the Columbine killers, their families, Sue Klebold, she, I mean, she describes it absolutely perfectly in her book, you know, and it, it really brings us to this understanding of just how far the ripples of these types of crimes go and, you know, the shame that these families have had to live with. And I think it's very easy for people to automatically demonize the parents, you are, how could you not know your son was on this horrible pathway? And, and I was very fortunate enough in 2019 to actually hear a talk by Sue Klebold when I was at a conference in the States, and it really changed my perception. It wasn't that I actively thought of her this way or the parents, but you just, I think your brain automatically thinks, well, there's something this much wrong with this kid. There must be something really wrong with the parents also. And, and it really shattered that illusion. And, and like you say, that's, if we really want to try and understand these things with the interest of preventing them, we have to be speaking to people, the parents, the grandparents, the friends, the neighbors, etc., to try and figure out maybe what went wrong and could we stop it in the future. So, mm, so absolutely. absolutely, yeah. So, as I said, you went quite a bit into this whole preventative side, that there were warning signs. Um, I mean, I like that because that's what I'm very much interested in, but what, what made that appeal to you? And you go into quite a bit of detail mm. about saying how Monet kind of does compare to a lot of these overseas-style American school shooters, for example. Mm. So I actually think a lot of what, what you've done and what you've spoken about and written about got me thinking along that line and how important it is for us to understand 
the nature of these types of, of mass murders, even though Mornay's was not technically a mass murder, it was his intention. And, I mean, Columbine, you know, when that happened, I've, you know, consumed quite a lot of material about that. And, uh, and then you told me about the, the murder that happened in uh, Sweden as well. And it was really, what I wanted to know was how much had South Africa, why was South Africa different from these other countries? And how was the South African offender, if at all, different from, you know, the American offenders and the, the Swedish offender? And I think what I found was not not a heck of a lot different. <laughs> you know, the, the community and the the only thing that really differed was the resources they had access to as a result of, you know, their economic situation. And that was really, really interesting to me. And, you know, I think America has, has dealt with so many of these incidents. We, we hope that we'll never be in that situation, but we can't say that we won't. And we learned so little as... You know, our, our law enforcement, I think, and the schooling community learned so little from Monet's crime that it's actually frightening because he really could just be the first. And, you know, these are the things we need to start looking at, as, as you often say, to see how can we not become the next America. And that was going to be my next question. Do you think anything has changed after this horrific mm -hmm. incident? Anything changed at that school? Anything changed in the education system? So certainly, I mean, from, from what I, I approached the school um, for comment for the book and they declined to comment, um, I know what, from what we've seen in certain articles in, that came out after that, there certainly was, there were additional incidents after that, not, you know, of this nature, but bullying incidents with teachers and that sort of thing. So whether anything changed there or not, I, I doubt it. I, I think the school took a stance of this was a flash in the pan and there was nothing we really could have done to avoid it. And I think that's quite sad because then that happened to the Department of Education as well. And I really don't think that, that anything was put in place, at least, at least not that I can see, um, you know, to stop something like this happening again. I think I can just say from my own experience that I, I often struggled if I approach a school and say, can I, can I just come and chat to you about these issues? Just, you know, between mm. me and a, the head or the deputy or whoever. Yeah. And it's kind of a thanks, but no thanks. Mm. And for the first time, literally two weeks ago, one of these big companies that owns lots of schools said, we realize we need to actually equip our, at least our headmasters with understanding what is this? How do you identify it? How do you kind of prevent it? How do you manage it? With a view on getting more in depth training to the schools themselves on setting up a little team of people. But right. that was literally the first time in goodness knows how many years. And I, yeah. and I agree with it. It seems like South Africans were like, wow, that's a weird once off. Mm. So yeah. we, we react to it, but we don't think, how do we stop something in the future? Mm. Uh, and sadly, I don't, I don't see anything having changed with the sort of education departments no. uh, in that sense. So even, I mean, you can say that the, 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 the Monet type of stuff is very rare. Well, how often will it happen? It's probably not often. Yeah. But it's not about that. It's about everything else that happens leading up to a moment like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we see, I think yesterday there was headlines, I think I put it on my Twitter, about a, a kid mm -hmm. shot outside of a school, and the day before, two days before, a kid stabbed outside of a school. So yeah. these horrific things are happening, and mm -hmm. the less horrific things, which is the bullying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the sort of abuse yeah. of teachers by staff, or by other staff, by students, etc. And bullying was kind of one of the central issues here in this case, mm -hmm. wasn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I mean, just just young men and and women struggling in life. You know, it's whether or not they end up committing mass murder is is the point, but is also not really the point. It's about the schools are spending that much time with them. They're spending often more time with them during the week, at least, than their parents are. You know, so and that's such an important place for these people to these kids to be helped, and it's just not happening. You know, and and, and the bullying aspect, something you said to me when I interviewed you for the book, really stuck with me and sort of made me realize that I'd been thinking differently about bullying as well, and that was that one remark to one person may mean nothing. That same remark to another person who's already in an emotionally unstable state may be the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's and we saw that in Columbine and most of these when the bullying allegations come out, people's schools shut down, they say no, there was no no bullying in our school. Um, you know, the, the the pupils at that school also don't want that, you know, attached to their names. But what they don't realize is that bullying takes many forms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always just at the schools. Of course, we know with Mornay, unfortunately, he was experiencing that dynamic at home as well. And I think any school that says, oh, we don't have bullying, mm. it's like, yes, you do, and you, and you clearly have a reporting problem. Yes, And if absolutely. you're not telling people what you want to hear and how they can re- report it and they can do it various means and anonymously, then you're just sitting, looking over here, ignoring everything that's going on. Yeah. Whether it's bullying or sexual harassment, stalking behavior, inappropriate social media stuff. You're just, you're just living in total ignorance. Mm. And then these things will be a big surprise to you, yeah. I think. Of course. I mean, anywhere where you put a number of human beings together, there's going to be some risk of negative behavior. That, you know, there's, there's no chance it's not going to happen. Now, Captain Haynes was the investigating officer in this mm. case. And I remember when I looked at the docket, I thought it was a really, really well investigated docket. You often, you often find where the case is kind of open and shut. Uh, the guy was arrested at the scene. The, the cops don't put a lot of work into those cases because it's like, well, why do we need to take 100 statements? Because, you know, he was arrested right there, got a couple of statements, we got the postmortem. But this docket was really, really thoroughly investigated. He, he interviewed so many people. When you, when you interviewed him for a book, what was your sort of impression of him? But also, what, what motivated him for this case to do so much work, which I suppose technically legally wasn't required, mm. but he did anyway. So, chatting with um, Haynes was, it was quite eye-opening. He was, he was really eager to chat with me. I struggled in the beginning to get hold of him, but when I eventually did, he was really eager to chat to me. He was... I don't want to say excited because that sounds strange, but he was glad that someone, I think, was documenting the case. And I think that's because he very well knew that there were many elements of this case that were never properly discussed and brought out into the public domain. And I think for him, as a police officer, you know, he he chatted to me about um, some of the other cases he's dealt with where he felt offenders didn't get appropriate sentences, and you can, you can just tell he is a really committed police officer. And I think for him, this one was really, really important because he wanted to make sure that not only was there justice for Jacques, but that the community of Krugersdorp, which he, in which he worked at the time, felt that they were safe. Because that was a huge thing, I think, for that. You know, parents were suddenly 
are we not safe sending our kids to school anymore? That's supposed to be a safe place. Where are they safe? You know, so I think that was really huge for him. And I know it was really disappointing to him that um, Monet was released on parole this year. Um, he doesn't feel that was a great idea. He did express that to me. Um, you know, and one of the things that, that really jumped out at me was him wanting to take Monet for a CAT scan. Because he was on this, I think just as much as everyone else, he was on the search for why. You know, I mean, he didn't need to prove a motive. You know, he, he had his evidence. He knew he'd committed the crime. He didn't need to prove why. Um, you know, but I think that on a personal level, perhaps, he really wanted to understand why, and, and he wanted also to make sure he hadn't missed anything. You know, that he wasn't sending some child with a, a brain structure defect to prison when he did something he couldn't control. And I, I mean, it really comes up, like I said, in his docket. Um, and it was great for me when I started to look at this from a threat assessment and prevention point of view, because all the stuff I wanted to know, he'd gotten in statements from various people. Mm. Um, so I think, I mean, a good kudos to him for, for the work he did in this case. Yeah. And like you say, you know, police dockets don't have to show the why. And I think we often, as I said, society, we want the answers, and I think a book like this helps give those answers. But a, a policeman just has to prove that person A did this to that person that meets the certain legal requirements, and here's my evidence to prove it. Why he did it? It's irrelevant for a court case. So for a lot of cops, that really, it might be a curiosity, but it's not a requirement. So I think his work really did help us get to, to some mm. of those answers. Now, you already mentioned it, but um, Monet gets parole. Mm, so yeah. what, what, what about, what do you have to say about that? Or, yeah, so um, in, in March this year when he was paroled, obviously you, you were quite um, public about your, your opinions on that, which I think was very important um, because you had obviously met him and done a risk anal analysis on him and identified, you know, so often when the public hear these people are being released on parole and Monet presents as this really this character that you shouldn't have to fear. And I think it would be really easy for the public, especially since he committed the crime when he was 18, to say, oh, well, it's fine. Let's give him another chance. That's why I think it was so important for us to really understand that the risk factors he had in 2019 and in 2022 were greater than when he went into prison. Because that also highlighted for us, not just in Monet's case, but in general, where the failings are perhaps in the Department of Correctional Services and then also in our parole system as a whole. Yeah. Um, so that's really what... And, and that was actually quite surprising for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing that I just wanted to mention, in 2019 when he had his first parole hearing, uh, Leonie Pretorius, his aunt, contacted me because she was searching, she was contacted, she said she's got a, you know, they said you have the opportunity to present your, your case or represent Jacques at, at the hearing. And she had no idea, you know, where to go, what to do. These were like the hours after she'd been told. And she searched Jacques' name on, on Google. She was looking for information she could use. And she found my podcast. Oh, wow. And that's how we connected initially. And that was really sad for me. And I found that over and over again in the parole system is how... The victims' families are so ill-prepared, yeah. firstly, that offenders are actually going to get parole. Yeah. A lot of them don't realize they are. And secondly, when it does happen, 
they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing and there's almost no guidance for them. So yeah. that was a big thing for me as well. And that's something I've heard time and time again also from families. I mean, more recently, the Lee Matthews family and mm. the debacle around that. So luckily, nobody didn't get parole, but I foresee that you'll probably get parole in a year's time or two years' time. Um, and I think what I, when I was reading your book, it, it, you know, I, as you said, I got involved in 2019. It was my first opportunity to assess Monet and meet him face-to-face. By then, I'd gone through the docket, and I'd spoken to Franco Fister before he passed away, the psychologist who did a really, really great thoroughness. I mean, he also went out of his way to a very detailed assessment as part of that early observation back in 2009. Mm. Um, and oh, I don't lose my thought here. Uh, so I met him in 2019, I, I had the fortunate opportunity to meet his parents also and wrote my report and myself and the two correctional service psychologists who really did a fantastic job were all unanimous in don't, you cannot release him. Yeah. So when I was reading your book and, and I see that the correctional services commented to you about the fact that I had said he shouldn't, said, well, well, Lobiscotney saw him two, three years ago. Yeah, but I knew from now. those correctional services psychologists who were continuing to do updated assessments, they said nothing had changed. And their opinion was still, there's no way you should be releasing Mone back into society. So the yeah. kind of, the response to you was kind of whitewashing the fact that their own psychologists continue to say that this is not a great situation, he should not be released. And it's really unfair on Monet to be released yeah. back into society when he's clearly not ready for it, mm. and his parents, and of course the greater society that could bear the consequences yeah. of, of this kind of behavior. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that we don't consider as well, is yes, these offenders want their freedom, but the Department of Correctional Services, when they take that offender under their mandate, they have a responsibility to that offender as much as to the community. And, you know, when they're releasing an offender that is not prepared to go out into society and be successful, and they're not arming them with the resources they need to do that, um, obviously there is there's responsibility that lays with the offender as well. But that's the Department of Correctional Services mandate. And they're failing the offender as much as they're failing, you know, setting them up for failure is basically what they're doing. Yeah, and I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I always post when there's ever, ever sort of parole bungles uh, in that regard. What I found so weird is here we have a kid who's really doing badly in prison. He's not doing well. He's having his privileges re- revoked regularly. He's getting into fights, as you cover in your book. He's mental health went backwards, drug abuse, yet they seem so keen on getting them out. Mm. You know, I've seen that with other offenders who behave squeaky clean when they're in prison. And they go, oh, poor guy, he's done all these courses, he hasn't gotten into trouble in prison, he hasn't gotten into gangs, let's give him a second chance. And I can understand that faulty logic, because they they just obviously don't understand about risk and risk assessment, and they think he seems so normal and so remorseful, let's let's send him off. But Mornay wasn't like that. Mm. And it just really baffled me why they were so eager. You know, there there wasn't community pressure to get this guy back into the community. Why they felt so determined that every three months they're having another hearing. Mm. Really? Why not every two years like everybody else, or every year? And that was just, um, I don't know, I still don't know. I don't know if you've got any explanations. You know, as much as I've, um, you know, spoken to people about about this case, that, that mystery has never been solved, and it is very strange. Um, I was, so I was chatting with a, the sister of one of the Sizzler's victims, and she's coming through to South Africa because that offender is now up for parole. And I mentioned to her that, uh, you know, Monet had had new hearings every three months, and she almost lost it. 
because she'd been told it would be every two years. And, yeah. you know, how do we know that that's not going to be the same with the offender in her case? And, and I sometimes wonder, is it because people think of this, well, only one person died, which, yeah. I mean, is bad enough. Yeah. And it's like, no, this was a planned mass murder. Mm. If things had gone his way, Absolutely. a lot of people would have died. And yeah. that's, as you say, what he was planning to do. So you have to judge it in those eyes, not, well, it's one murder, he was young, it's, 20, it's 10 years later, let's let him go. And, yeah. Which doesn't make sense. Yeah. Before we perhaps throw it open to the floor, are there any things that you want to mention about the book um, that we haven't covered? Or, or? Um, no, just, you know, I think one of the, the most important things for me was working. The, the title is perhaps a little bit... I've often had people ask me, you know, your work is victim-focused. Why is it called The Mornay Adams' Story? And the content is very different from what the title tells us it's going to be, but what's also very important is that the Pretorius family were the first people I approached when I wanted to write this book. And they were on board, they were very happy with, with the, the book itself. Uh, Leonie Pretorius, Jacques' aunt, was at the Clearwater launch and I gave her a signed copy. And that for me was, was really, really an important thing. Um, you know, that was perhaps the most important. Um, so yeah, I think I'd like people to read it with that in mind because at no point do I want anyone to think that I've written this book to glorify what Monet did or, you know, ride on the wave of, of anything like that. And it, it definitely, I can guarantee you from my side, doesn't come across like that. Thank you. Then perhaps, well, one last question. You mentioned fiction, uh, or perhaps just the question of what, are there more books to come, and would they be fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> so definitely non-fiction. Uh, Melinda and I are looking at a new book for next year. Um, the topic is up for debate at the moment because we've come across some legalities on the case that I had wanted to cover, but I'm hoping to be able to fight for that one because it'll be a really important case on the parole side. But yes, certainly, if it's not that case, it'll be another one, and there will be some more true crime books in the future. Great, thank you. Are you happy one or two questions? Absolutely, I know we're... yeah, no, that's Great. perfect. Um, one or two questions that anybody from the audience would like to ask. We've got a microphone that'll be passed around. One, one, two, one, two. Are you? Hi, Nicole. Hi, Gerard. It's great to meet you. I'm just wondering, of course, Monet was released on parole, as you mentioned earlier this year, right in the middle of when you were busy writing the book. Did you ever second-guess releasing it just for your own safety? So this book was written over the space of about three months. It was actually written, um, the contract was signed after Monet was released. Whether or not I'd been worried about that aspect... I'd, I'd certainly considered it. I think I'd be stupid if I hadn't. Um, you know, I'm not invincible, but I think that Monet and the Haramsa family have enough of their own worries to worry about at the moment. And I hope that if they've, if anyone they know has read the book or if they've read the book, that they will know that the book was not written to drag out their dirty laundry into public. And that I've certainly tried to give them as much grace as possible. So, yeah, that wasn't really a huge, huge fear for me, I would say. Thank you. Interesting question. Thank you. I don't know mm -hmm. we had that one. I don't know. No? Oh. No? <laughs> um, another person would like to ask a question? There's our microphone. 
Hi. Oh, um, huge fan. Both of you. So I've listened to both of your podcasts, and obviously the thing about parole comes out quite a lot, especially on yours as well. So I think my question is basically, like, is something going to change? Like, um, you know, the thing is, like, there's the proof with the Mornay Hollandsa case. It was said he's not ready, and he was released, and eventually he does get released. So, you know, what is the process? Is anything, can anything be done? What can we change? Like, it, in whose hands is this to change? Because it's not right. Mm. Do you want to go? Do you want to? Yeah, sure. Uh, just my own thoughts, which I've, I've said over and over, is that I think until families like, I think the Gardi family is now going to be suing correctional services because they don't want to listen. And this is all over the media whenever they make bungles. And there's no consequences for the parole boards themselves. I bet, I bet they don't even do statistics to see which ones get it wrong the most often to say they need to look at that particular parole board. So I think, sadly, we have to start suing them uh, and trying to maybe the financial knock would, and the, the extremely bad publicity around that and, and case law might make them change, but I think they've been talking about this since 2004. Uh, it was like, oh, how long is it going to take then? That's my terrible mess 18 years ago. So I don't know what would cause it, because clearly just the normal embarrassment, they just kind of like brush it off. Monet, they'll probably say, but success so far hasn't done anything. Mm. Well, I don't know. It's not just about him not killing someone. It's about, is he going to be thriving and going forward and being a productive member of society? And, yeah. and also, society, and I, I, this is another thing I often say, is that you might, and this is not Monet's face, but you might have finished, you might finished being rehabilitated, but you haven't finished being punished. So I don't care if you've been rehabilitated after one year of being in prison for murdering someone, you probably still need to be punished a little bit longer. And we forget, and I think parole boards forget that when a court gives you a sentence, they look at punishment, deterrence, retribution, the offender, society, making sure somebody else doesn't do it, making sure I don't do it again, a whole bunch of factors. And they say, we think this is an appropriate sentence. Correctional service just seems to look at, well, he feels very remorseful, so let's let him go. It's like, well, that's one aspect of like 10 that you're only focusing on when you decide to release. I think you're actually disregard Menachtem uh, off or whatever yeah. terminology you'd want to use. But your thoughts on it? So I've always wondered, um, I, I think that cases like the Gaudi case that we're seeing now is probably going to be the only thing that's going to force their hand. And I've always wondered what the possibility would be of having a um, sort of mass action case. Because we know there's so many of these, I mean, Tasnay van Vaik is one good example, but there's, there's so many uh, victims whose lives have been lost to parole defendants. And I've always wondered about the possibility of a mass action case of, yeah. you know, tens of, if we can get a thousand victims to stand, yeah. you know, against the Department of Correctional Services, sue them for something that would probably bankrupt them. Mm. And, you know, whether that case is going to go ahead or not, maybe it would get some attention. Yeah. And, and sadly, a lot of these families don't have the financial resources mm. that, that other funds, obviously a certain segment of society can afford to take government to court, yeah. unless there's, you know, people being worked pro bono. Um, but I do, I must say, there's one politician that I've noted, and I'm not going to say which party because that's irrelevant, Janu Engelbrecht, who's been asking these questions in Cape Town. How many people, they didn't contact the families prior to the parole hearing? Mm. How many people were released and re-offended? So, I do think the political side of pushing it, but of course, once once it's one political party, it also comes with a certain taste in the mouth. That's oh, that's just that party that does those things, uh, and so sadly, but that's probably a multi-pronged approach that has to be done. Mm. 
Uh, perhaps one more question? Yeah, look, I mean, whoever, yeah. Why is it, you know, that the general public doesn't know we were involved in prison ministry for 14 years. And what the general public don't know is that when they say someone gets three life sentences, one presumes that life sentence is 25 years. Okay, you'll be put away for 25, for 75 years. But what happens when they say it's running concurrently? The one swallows the other, like fuck back, fuck back. So in other words, it can get out to 15 to 20 years. But this is what is not told to the public. Yeah. So people don't know about it. So in your last minisode yesterday, Nicole, you mentioned about a rapist who raped 92 people in 10 years before he was caught. Yeah. I mean, if the in overseas countries, if you're fine, if you're found guilty, there is no way you'll get out to do the same. But so often in South Africa, we hear of uh, parolees that come out and do exactly the same. There was that guy that, that is currently on trial who killed a nine-year-old child who then came out on parole and is now killed and, and raped and um, cut up a four-year-old child. And his first case hasn't even been completed. So what can, uh, maybe max action is really necessary. Because people don't realize that when the sentences run that concurrently, the maximum is 25 years. So, I know that you'll be able to speak to the legalities of this, but that is actually something that, that bothers me quite a lot and that I try and use the podcast to educate people around because I've had to educate myself around that and is how life sentences actually work. So, generally, when, and I found a lot of victims' families are not explained, it's not explained to them when the, the offender is given a life sentence, that does not mean they will necessarily spend their entire life behind bars. It does mean that they will be under the auspices of the Department of Correctional Services for the rest of their natural lives, but at 25 years they become eligible for parole. Eligible, not necessarily released. And that is, and, and also the concurrent versus consecutive is a, is a huge issue as well. And I agree, I mean, a lot of people, they hear, oh, we've got, you know, 500 years. Well, he's not going to sit for 500 years. Firstly, they, like in South African law, as, as it was said now, the question, if you've done multiple offenses, the day you're sentenced, all those sentences start to, to run. So you might have 90 years if you look at it that way, but if it was 10 years times nine incidences of rape, they're all kicking off today. So at the maximum of 10 years from now, you will be released. I don't think that's great. I don't think that's right, because it just encourages you to, to do more crimes, because if you get caught, well, you're going to serve pretty much the same length of time. Where it might affect you is, would you get parole where a single offender would normally get parole at a certain point? They might say, well, Gerard, you've done nine times that. Well, let's keep you for another year or two before we release you on parole. So that is, I think, like I say, for well, the one thing, the families get very horribly shocked and disappointed. And it does create this false impression, well, this guy's never going to get out. Mm. And there's very few offenders, unless they die quickly of a natural cause. There are very few offenders that are going to die in prison, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with parole, but I do think we need to say, you know, parole for someone who stole 10,000 rand from a company, that's horrible, that's bad, and you must be punished. Mm. 
but I have less of a worry about that person getting paroled two years before their sentence expires to help reintegrate them back into the community that we can monitor them. Because once your sentence expires, we have no hold over you. You can walk out of that prison door. We can't even ask you where you're going. So I do think parole is important because it gives us that opportunity to test the person little by little back in society with certain restrictions. We can monitor them. We have to know where they're going. We can tell them they can't drink. They can't do this. They can't do that. Um, so that issue is not a problem with it. It's just like, do you understand that certain people, correctional services, probably should never be? And that's a difficult thing for them to understand. And certain people we should really keep as long as possible before we give them maybe that little, right at the end, a little taste of sampling what it's like to be out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've also I've often wondered, I mean, I, I know this is probably not the NPA's role, but should the prosecutor in a case not at least be educating the victim's family if there is a relationship there around what these sentences actually mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I understand it's probably not their mandate, uh, but it but just who feels... Else, really? Yeah, it, it would be a five-minute conversation that would save them a lot of heartache in 25 years' time. Hmm. Nicole, um, one last quick one. Thank you. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to stand because I'm right here. When you are doing or preparing a podcast, there's so many things about your podcast that makes it different. Um, one of them being you do not glorify the offender, which I really appreciate because it takes a whole different aspect. Another is you are so calm sometimes <laughs> and you keep, it's almost like you, you, you're creating an ambiance. Do you put yourself in a position, you will often open with a young girl is walking, do you put yourself in the victim's shoes to try and imagine what they went through? Um, I'm trying to specifically remember an episode and I cannot write now. It's fine. How do you write your story? How do you write the story? Because that's what engages me. It is told from a victim's point of view mm. very calmly and then when Nicole comes in, Nicole is angry, which <laughs> rightfully so. Yeah. But then the victim comes back yeah. and you're calm. How do you go about that process? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting observation and I don't know that that's always entirely on purpose, but I think it's important for me, so we, we know one of the, the most valuable things about the podcast is people like to hear the story chronologically, they often haven't heard the story chronologically, um, you know, even victims' families will say, I've actually never heard my sister, brother, their story told from start to finish like that, and that's, so, so that's one important aspect for me. When I, I have often tried, I do keep a lot of my own opinions out of it um, because if I had to include all of my own opinions, you know, but I do like to bring in insights that I hope will be, will help people to think about things a little bit differently. And that's quite important for me. I have found that with certain cases, I do get a little bit too close to thinking about what that moment might have been like. And it's often the really the ones where you just cannot understand how another human being, how a human being can do that to another person. You know, an example would be the the murder that happened out in um, 
the flower town that I cannot remember now, um, in the farmhouse where a young girl was murdered and her mom was murdered and the owner of the house was murdered and there was a surviving murder, uh, sorry, a surviving victim. And I think that one for me and similar cases where that mom was listening to the horrible things that were happening in the next room. Um, I actually think I left one of my my breaths in there that I usually edit out because I wanted that emotion to stay in there. Um, you know, I do try and present the podcast as unemotionally as I can, but I do want people to know that I am actually connecting with these victims, what they must have experienced in their last moments. I try not to do that too much because <laughs> otherwise you won't get a podcast. But, um, yeah, there are certainly cases where that's more difficult than others. We'll drop Freud to the final closing. We're going to be signing your book. Where is that going to be here? I think there will probably be good because I think there's a lot of people who want you to sign their books too. So maybe you can take one side and I'll take the other. So we'll be sitting over there. So, Nicole, thank you very much. And thank you, you, all of you, for coming out this, this afternoon. I do hope you enjoyed your bonus episode for the week. Thank you once again for your support throughout the year, and I'll be back in your feed later in the week with episode 139. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dialer Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.